0: Welcome to the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen, and I'm Phil Dobby. Today, will higher oil prices drive alternative energy investment? Oil prices are, of course, highly volatile. But even though he keeps saying he wants prices lower, President Trump is helping constrain supply from Iran and Venezuela. Well... Constraints, perhaps a bit of a tame word, totally eradicate, really. So, will that push oil prices higher? After all, we are seeing Brent crude prices closer to 80 US dollars a barrel now. So, as fossil fuels become more expensive, does that mean we'll start to shift towards environmentally sustainable alternatives? Could supply and price be the planet's savior? That's today on the Debanking Economics podcast. So, Steve, I do wonder whether Donald Trump is actually a closet environmentalist, because at the surface level, it doesn't sound like it, does it? I mean, he's he is pro-oil, he's removed environmental protections, he's approved pipelines, and he's pulled out of the uh, Paris Climate Agreement, of course. But on the other side, he is stopping this flow of oil for Muran and Venezuela. That's helping to elevate prices. So does that mean if oil prices uh, go up, uh, does that mean we're more likely to switch to more environmentally friendly alternatives, if if the prices stay higher for longer.
1: No, oh, well, as you like anything, bad, uh, Donald Trump ever does, it's so if it does anything good, it's an accident. Uh, but <laughs> uh, but in that particular case, it's it certainly in the very short term, it doesn't have any impact upon uh, switching over because you know mm. you can't just decide, oh damn, oil's too expensive today. I'll fuel my car with solar power instead. Uh, you've got to change the infrastructure. Yeah, it's got to be generation. sustained. But if it yeah, was sustained,
0: yeah. like, I mean, it was as high as $148 a barrel back in 2008. It's been hovering around $80 a barrel for most of last year. Then it dipped. Then it came back up again. It's sort of pretty close to, to that level. And we know that res- oil reserves are getting low as well. So it could get higher. So, you know, if it becomes consistent, then then it, from what you're saying, well, yes, we would start to look at alternatives.
1: Yeah, I mean, we certainly are already, uh, because that's you've got to, that's one reason. I'm, uh, you know, regardless of what else happens, I'm going to remain a fan of Elon Musk uh, mm. because he's he's made electric cars sexy. Whether they're the solution or not is another story. Have entirely. you ever
0: driven a Tesla? No, and I do want oh. to. Have you? Have yeah, you? it is. I tell you, it is unreal. You would, ne- you will never be happy in any other car after you've driven that's- one. It's That's it. exactly
1: what I've uh, heard mm. from most people who have driven one. And I want my petrol head. I've got a good one of my best mates back in Australia. Is a, he qualifies as a petrol head. It's mainly on motorbikes that he's a petrol head rather than cars. But he sort of d- d- poo poos them as, oh, my God, they've got no, you know, look at them, how ugly they are. There's no sex appeal, yada, yada, yada. Mm. My basic is you put your foot on the accelerator, mate, and you're going to feel sex.
0: Yeah, yeah, I know. It is incredible how they pull away. Absolutely yeah. incredible. I mean, not to sixty in uh, I don't know how many seconds, but, I mean, just, uh, you know, when, you, when you're when you on a motorway and you've got a very short run-on and you're going, you know, if you've virtually stopped, you can be at the speed of the traffic by the end of the, the run-on of the, on, yeah. on the motorway, yeah. so, yeah. But that,
1: but that raises one of the issues as well, which, at the end of the counterpoint, sort one of the groups that I follow on Twitter, Limits to Growth, uh, makes, and also Tim Garrett, my research associate, uh, now on the role of energy, and that is that uh, what we tend to do when we find more efficient ways of using energy we don't use less we use more energy Mm. and uh, and so this is a whole question how much energy goes into the tesla itself and uh, what is the actual energy implications of continuing to use roads for transportation Uh, where even teslas are going to get stuck in traffic jams uh and and will
0: we drive more because it's such a pleasant experience driving a tesla we say well let's drive three times as much
1: Exactly. And this, is, this is actually goes back to what called the Jevons paradox and one of the few times I'm going to quote favourably a father of neoclassical economics. As Jevons pointed out, that was what he'd seen historically as well. When we found more efficient ways of using energy, we used more energy, we didn't use less. And the question comes back to, uh, is it a case that we simply have to find more efficient ways of using energy or do we have to use less energy? And uh, on that case... Uh, the, the evidence that I see particularly from Tim Garrett 's work, but also what i 've been doing myself and and uh, and looking at the things like the overshoot we can see in the uh, in the uh, human ecological footprint, knowing the levels of carbon we 've got at the moment, even if it didn't raise issues about more carbon going into the atmosphere, which of course it does uh, there's still an issue we may have to drastically reduce energy consumption. For something of the nature of the next forty to sixty years, mm. if we're going to re- if we're going to make life on this planet sustainable, so is, and, is more uh, expensive
0: yeah. energy going to do that? Then, because so if if oil became more expensive, then okay, we might go to alternatives, but those alternatives are not going to be as cheap as oil used to be. So we're still paying more for energy. So does that mean we will use less energy than we used to because we're paying more for it?
1: Well, that's that's that again comes con- part part of the context is can we do this? while maintaining the level of uh, consumption mm. we currently, inverted commas, enjoy. Uh, and I'm using it inverted commas for two reasons. One, a lot of what consumption is wasteful. Uh, we know the side effects of it, and we, of course, don't have an even distribution of it around the planet. Uh, but if we imagine, can we manage to make the transition from the high-carbon And high energy world we have now to a future world, which is also high energy but low carbon. um, The information I'm seeing, and again, I know more than most people on this, but I would not yet call myself an expert. Uh, What I can see, the two are incompatible. Uh, We have such a level of, and this is not just, in in some ways, actually, I'm glad we've got global warming because it's such a, a major large scale issue and obvious at the same time in terms of you know, we're feeling that, that apart from us that you know that belong to the flat earth society that also believe global warming is conspiracy and the place is getting cooler uh, most of us are experiencing it and have seen it in our own lifetimes and uh, and it, it implies if we're going to anything about it we have to do a major rework of human society now that is much more visible than what's happening and this is something which I've only realised by seeing recent writing about it and then putting my own mind back over my own personal history, uh, well, they're now calling the uh, Insectageddon uh, because if you go for a drive now from, you know, let's take a Sydney, uh, Australian location, if you go from Sydney to uh, Bourke uh, or if you're in Europe, you drive from London, if you drive from Amsterdam to Paris, you're not going to be spending most of your time wiping insects off the windshield because they're not there anymore. Mm. But I vividly remember as a child uh, in my father's car going for long family holidays from uh, Sydney yeah. to Port to Quarry and, and ultimately to Walgood as well, um, that... <laughs> It was just keep them windscreen wipers going, wash them insects off.
0: Well, I hate yeah. to I hate to put, uh, disagree with you on this one. I just drove, drove back from the Lake District a week ago, mm. and uh, yeah, our windscreen was smothered in insects. So they are still around; they're just choosing carefully where they go. But well, look, if I'm
1: very <laughs> ba- funny, them there because it, 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 <laughs> that's good news. Everywhere
0: else, they've gone. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That is, I mean that isn't it? so the environment is changing. We need to do something about it. We sort of yeah. know that, but uh, yeah. the question is, how much of that can be driven by economic? So if the price of... Oil or energy generally rises. Uh, then, are we going to use less of it? Are we going to sort of manage to find a way where we say, "Okay, well, we need to use energy more efficiently, but still have the same outputs." So, we need to be more careful about how we we use it. We need new processes which are going to be less energy intensive that are still going to get the same results for us.
1: And, and will the price rise and motivate all those things back to the first point? Uh, this is one of the issues that actually is coming up in the two what look like very opposing public protest right now, but actually have a very common core, and that's the Gilets Jaunes in Paris, mm. in France, and the, uh, uh, the Extinction Rebellion in London, which, of course, that's now going. They're both in various ways gone global. But the point of the the reason that the Gilets Jaunes first occurred was a proposal by Macron to put up uh, fuel types. taxes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it was going to start in 2019, and on November seventeen uh, we had the first of the Gilets Jaunes protests. They date they date back in terms of development to sometime in October, from what I can tell. But uh, that was saying, no way, we can't afford it. We are already, and this is the we we're talking about, are the. Effectively, the dispossessed of, of, of and the dispossessed and, and disenfranchised of France—they're the people who don't live in Paris, who don't live, have comfortable, high incomes from the globalized world that Paris is part of, and who have to drive to work each day uh, because they don't live in Paris, where there's a great metro, and they're driving in cars, which are, a large number of them have become diesel, whether they're working in, in, you know, in trucks, which have always been predominantly diesel, or the the, the cars that. French, in particular, switched over to mm. diesel back when it was seen as an environmentally advantageous fuel, which is
0: not good. Right. But that, but that, that is a symptom, isn't it? I mean, I mean, you could easily say, well, okay, we're going to give you subsidies to try and compensate for the fact that if you've got an old car, you need to, you need to shift. The issue, though, is that they're saying, well, we can't afford to do that because we're we're so disenfranchised because the so poor. Rich poor gap is so yeah. so big. Yeah. So if, if that they- if that had, didn't exist, if they if the gap wasn't so wide, they wouldn't be so worried about these things.
1: Exactly, and I think this is the problem about trying to use price, and of course, carbon tax affects price. That's what it's. That's literally what it has to do. It puts the price up. Mm. Uh, uh, if is price the rationing mechanism we need? And this is where we come to a clash between the neoclassical. Uh, vision of price as an allocative mechanism between different products, and the reality, I'm afraid to say, uh, which is more what the post-Keynesian world looks like theoretically, that price is an allocation mechanism between workers and ca- uh, workers and capitalists, uh, in, the, in the twofold way. If you first of all have a wage bargain, of course, which is something which sets the monetary value of the wage, but those the, in, because the monetary value of the wage isn't one of the major inputs to the cost of production in manufacturing, uh, and that then leads back to a response by manufacturers who will uh, put up may or may not put up prices in response to the wage rises and the two you know, if, affect each other in a, in a counteracting way. Now um, what 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 the, the post Keynesians therefore see, the role of prices is fundamentally an allocation mechanism between workers and capitalists. Now, if you had uh, if you had the income levels of the fifties and sixties, uh, relative income levels, then the impact would not be so great. But given the extent to which workers have suffered through globalization in the West, in particular, and also the the point that I make out that the rising level of private debt is actually paid for by a lower lower wage a share for workers it's the workers who are copying it and if you try to do the entire thing through the price mechanism it's basically saying if you're poor you're going to pay for carbon you're going to pay for uh, fighting carbon if yeah. you're rich it doesn't matter you can afford the fuel you
0: can even afford the Tesla but isn't it yeah which would be nice wouldn't it oh god I wish because they are <laughs> such good cars to drive have I mentioned that <laughs> but look the and, and but the most of the cost is uh, and that it, it is unfortunate as I say maybe you can find ways around it through subsidies or maybe the focus shouldn't be on the individual it should be on businesses because it's businesses we want to shift doesn't it we want them to say yes find an alternative energy has been too cheap you're using it in in a way where it is a a throwaway resource well obviously it is a throwaway resource but you need to use less of it uh, and still try and achieve the same productivity you just need to think harder about it it might be more expensive but that's going to be the thing that is going to force you to try and find new ways.
1: Yeah, I mean that's I mean, again that's a, the thought about how to do it. But again, the question becomes: Will those businesses pass the costs on? Will and what what will they do again to workers already complaining? They're, they're barely managing to survive. Is the people, particularly those who live in what they call the gig economy, mm-hmm. uh, which we were onto in, in one of our next discussions, um, they are already effectively on the breadline. They pay their own transportation costs. Um, they pay their own food and you know, food, food and everything else costs as well. If those other costs go in response to an uh, increase in taxes to business, it's still the workers are going to say, I can't cope with this. Mm. So my, my feeling is, and this is a, it's, it's not something we're going to see in the next 10 years, maybe not in the next 10 years, but I think certainly in the next 20, we're going to be seeing ourselves in a world where we have actual official gov- war-style rationing. And the, when you impose the costs not by making something more expensive, but by meaning you can get less of it no matter how much you can afford to pay for it. Mm. And, and that was the mechanism that kept costs, part one of the mechanisms. Well, doesn't
0: that push prices up, though? I mean, if, you, I if you're limiting the resource nope, for something, nope, isn't the, that going to push the price of it up?
1: No, nope, again, because this was, again, done during the Second World War. And, uh, in fact, a, a leading uh, non-Orthodox economist, James, John Kenneth Galbraith, played a major role, and this is another one. Um, I think I remember the name, Mead was involved there and Gardner Means and they were all involved in the attempts to do twofold, to restrict the amount of fuel that was being used for consumption and ordinary manufacturing to increase the amount that would be available for war manufacturing and do it in such a way that it didn't cause a major inflationary surge. There was inflation during the Second World War uh, in America in particular, but nothing like the scale you'd imagine if you just had a typical neoclassical idea about, well, if you ration something, the price is going to rise. Mm. Because What you do by rationing as well, you reduce the amount of demand that is allowed to occur. And, and that, therefore, means you don 't get that uh, you know high level of demand, cut back the supply, bang price is going to rise in a sort of neoclassical fashion you get there 's less demand for it. Uh, <coughs> because we simply won't allow you to express that demand, no matter how much money you have.
0: Right. Okay. That sort of makes sense. And that explains, sort of answers the next question I was going to ask. because oh, okay. Look at, we better forget could, it then. Yeah, forget it. Okay. I won't ask it. No, no, <laughs> no I'm going yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to. Let's go back to talking about driving a Tesla. It was so good. No, <laughs> uh, look, the, uh, the question I was going to ask was, you know, just because we, we, we do limit, of course, the supply of oil. Because we've got a cartel that, uh, by and large, uh, it, it's it's weakening now. Obviously, because of the uh, massive reserves of shale oil in the United States, but OPEC controls the amount of oil, and they do that to control the price, don't they?
1: Well, they did that way back in the early nineteen seventies. And actually, it's well worth people taking a look if they haven't actually seen these things—a uh, price of the price of oil over time—and there's one enormous spike in the uh, early 1970s and another enormous spike in the late 1970s. And they were both the original manifestation of what you're talking about there, which was OPEC, which of course was predominantly the Middle Eastern countries and originally you know, very much so uh, Saudi Arabia. <coughs> Pardon me, man, I... Mm. I catch on my throat. Uh, they realized they were being screwed by what the, they it's all those
0: insects you're swallowing.
1: Almost insects. That's right. Yeah. They're flying into my window <laughs> in Amsterdam. Um, they, they were really, they were being screwed. What what used to be known as the Seven Sisters, the major oil companies, all owned by the ex-colonial powers, particularly America, the UK and, and Holland, the Netherlands, where I currently am. And they uh, were just getting a tiny amount of the money that's coming out of all the oil that was coming out of their oil fields. And basically, Epic said, is enough, enough. They did this in the context of what was, I think, the biggest boom in the history of capitalism. And uh, that was the, the boom of the business from 69 to 73. And at the end of that boom, the, you had wage rises being demanded by workers. Of course, unemployment was low globally. Um, you then had this OPEC price rise coming, and they put the price up from $2.50 a barrel to 10 Also, in the context of the Yom Kippur War, uh, which, of course, the Israelis won very dramatically. This was, it was sort of the Seven Day War, It was it the Seven Day yep. War? And uh, in retaliation to that to that loss, effectively, that was another reason why OPEC was formed to put up the pact of price from two dollars fifty a barrel to ten. Then you had, towards the end of seventy nine, you had another period of not nothing like the boom of the nineteen seventy three, but another period of tight uh, economic activity. And in that situation, the price quadrupled again from ten dollars to forty. Now, that uh, when you're looking at that level of the price back then, when it's deflated. Uh, by By into current prices terms is actually a price of one hundred and twenty dollars a barrel. Mm. The only time it 's been higher than that was uh, just before the well, the global financial crisis again you had another boom going on there again workers wage rises were getting higher um, and you had the price spiking up to one hundred and sixty dollars a barrel in Price in inflation-adjusted terms.
0: So if we were to say, well, let's insist that oil is $150 a barrel, for example, if, and if it isn't that level, we're going to tax it up to that level – and we used all that extra money to invest in alternative technologies. so it's we either get a tax revenue or the producers go well hell no you know if you're going to tax it we may as well sell it to you for 150 dollars." so they make bigger profits which they may well use to invest in alternative technologies i mean that's a yeah, or they may just give it to their shareholders of course but that's well, a or, or that,
1: they go back to try to find more oil they go, yeah I mean, but
0: yeah because I mean, it's a good margin
1: yeah okay yeah, i mean Mm. This is one of the, the the, the idea that the price mechanism works as an allocation system is one of the myths that's heavily ingrained into people's thinking because of that classic, you know, intersecting supply and demand curve argument. Mm. And what we find instead is that uh, for, for most products, when you look at the supply curve, if you could actually draw one, what you get is something that slopes downwards. It's actually cheaper to produce in higher volume yeah. in manufacturing. Now, oil is a exception to that because when you, uh, not in the case of the Saudi Arabian fields necessarily, but in the case of the American system and uh, and the and the under uh, undersea oil fields and so on, if you want to get more out, then to some extent you've got to pump more. A lot yep. of the oil actually just literally comes out of the ground. the old the old uh, uh, Beverly Hillbillies where you'd you know shoot a shotgun at a, at a rabbit and oil comes out of the ground. That's how it used to be under, under the high pressure that used to exist in the original fields and still does in some of the larger ones. So you've got to basically stop it coming out of the ground as fast as it wants to. But when you start getting to the level of uh, you know, some of the more exotic fields... And I like particularly the shale oil, and, and thinking about the tar the, yeah. uh, sands in Canada. Then you've got to put more energy in to get more energy out. And this is the this is the crucial point that all this is in, in the context of. And economics economic theory is completely barren on this point. Uh, it's only worth getting energy out of the ground if the amount of energy you've got to put in to get it is less than the amount of energy you get out from doing it. And this is the this is the big crunch that is still. We're putting it off into the future, but But that stands to
0: reason. You wouldn't. I mean, surely it stands to reason that if if you're if you're putting energy in, then you've got a cost associated with that, uh, and you're not going to if you're not recouping that cost uh, from the energy you're producing, then you haven't got an economic business.
1: Well, unfortunately, sometimes you can have an economic business that way because often it, it's possible the energy cost you pay to get energy out of the ground can be less than the, the, the price you get on the stuff you actually mine. So it does have, the price system doesn't work perfectly and you do get distortions like that that make it possible people will continue mining, even though they're getting putting more energy in in jewels and they're, they're getting out in jewels. The price of what they're paying for can be less than the pr- price that they sell the other stuff for. However, the fundamental rule in energy research uh, is that it's only possible to have a viable human civilization if there's a large gap between the amount of energy you put in to get energy back out. And if you look back at the early, you know, the Beverly Hillville days and, and prior to that, the level of energy in to get a level amount of energy back from oil was at the order of a hundred or more to one, mm. and that's that's why oil is such a dense. Product. This is the other thing which people, again, because we just don't think enough about it, we don't realize what it's like. Um, The amount of energy in a a, a petrol tank, uh, if you let it off all at once, uh, you know, could destroy a building. It's an enormous amount of energy in a very compact form, and because it was held in fields that are, you know, underneath faults under high pressure. All you've got to do is drill a hole down, which takes a certain amount of energy, when you break into that um, reservoir, it, then it comes. Yeah. it's a gusher. The term yeah. used to be it's it's a gusher. Yeah. We've got a gusher. Well, this
0: is why uh, this is why the Saudis have so much influence, isn't it? Because they have such an excess of this oil, and they're not using it for their own domestic consumption. So, in the United States, I mean, they are, you know are increasing oil production, but a lot of it is uh, is met by domestic demand rather than export demand. So, when you start looking at who's exporting uh, and who has the most influence, these countries like. Saudi Saudi Arabia, because it is such a uh, you know such a big part of their balance of trade is the oil that they're exporting, and they can really set the price, can't they?
1: Yeah, well, that's been that's what been the situation uh, pretty much since the nineteen seventies, and it's not changed uh, too much. Well, it's, it's changed in terms of other because once the price goes up, as you pointed out, then it makes profitable to consider other fields which have higher higher production costs, yeah. but still below the sale costs. So, right. like the, the sorties have claimed to have oil cost productions as low. In modern-day terms, as four dollars a barrel, and certainly below ten dollars a right. barrel.
0: Okay. Well, let's look at let, let's look at this another way. Then, if we didn't have these uh, artificial boundaries mm-hmm. called countries, if we were looking at it from the most efficient way for the world, we'd be saying, "Well, yes, let's let's use the oil in Saudi Arabia. If they've got loads of it, it's as you say, it's cheaper to access, uses less energy to access. Let's forget about shale oil."
1: Yeah. And then we come back to the issue where the whole situation, once we do that, we're burning carbon and we know we can't afford to burn carbon. Yeah. Uh, and so, so we have a real dilemma. And the question is when we make, we make a transition to non, non carbon based fuel sources and the scale of that transition is something people just don't have their heads around. Because if you think about the amount of energy you're using, if you hop in your car and drive a hundred kilometers, uh, the amount of energy that, that is tied up in that is phenomenal. Uh, and if we want to go to replacing that by having an energy source which doesn't come from carbon, uh, we simply don't have the production facilities for that at the moment. And to build them in the first place would involve a lot of use of, guess what, carbon-based fuels because yeah. you need energy to make it. You need energy to mine energy. So we, we're, this is the bind we're in, like Tim Garrett's calculations, in terms of the amount of energy we'd, we'd need to replace uh, carbon-based so that we stabilise current energy output, is something in the order of building a 300-megawatt power station in a day. Mm. To actually reduce it substantially, you're talking a, a, you know a gigawatt power station per day. Now, we don't have the engineering capabilities to build that many at the one time. And if we do try to redirect the energy we currently have, towards that purpose then the energy available the rest of us are doing falls off drastically
0: but what about you know the the the, how long oil is going to last for i mean this has been part of the problem hasn't it if we go back to where like it was the 1950s when uh, m king hubbard said you know we were going to reach peak oil and he said in 1996 was when he said he was going to it was going to hit but he was wrong because those predictions have all been foiled by Unconventional sources of oil, like the shale that we talked about, which now forms a much larger part of the, of the whole mix, 8.4 million barrels a day now, the US is pumping out. A lot of that is, is, is shale oil. So that wasn't seen back in the in the 1950s. So why this focus? On us saying, well, okay, we need to find more energy now. Uh, we just we go we still go for oil or gas, and we just go for uh, you know for as you say a less energy efficient way of extracting this. Why is that still more cost effective than using other alternatives?
1: Well, let's go back. King Hubbard actually was right because he was talking about conventional oil sources. So he yeah. actually the peak oil did occur at the times he gave, uh, and, and that's all quite correct. What he didn't talk about was finding new ways to get oil out of other substances, which are where the shale oil thing came in. And this is partly what neoclassical economists argue that if the price gets to be high enough, uh, then we will exploit alternative sources. Mm. Now, the point which then neoclassicals don't have their heads around, and that includes Nordhaus, uh, is that if you do that, then what you have is you, by, 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 Finding an alternative energy source, which means you don't run out of the energy, you have another source of carbon, which means you're producing too much carbon.
0: Yeah,
1: and, and well, this is the, during that, the, the
0: transition, double, during the transition period, yeah.
1: Well, the double, triple, and quadruple bind we're in is that we we have to when we look at the level of climate change that we are seeing already, and what's feasible if the carbon continues rising at current rates, uh, we are talking an existential threat for the species. Now, that is not included in the way economists advise politicians about the impacts of climate change because they ludicrously, and I've just been researching this a moment ago, and even the, given the low opinion I have of economists to begin with, it still goes, limbos below that particular bar, uh, the way they cost calculated the cost of carbon change, uh, changing over to non-carbon s- s- sources and, and the cost of, of, of increasing carbon now. Um, we, we can't, they're, they're drastically underestimating the cost that that's going to involve mm. so we are very complacently running into a point where the climate is going to tell us you put any more in here and we're going to give you cyclones in london uh and and, and the, when it starts to the stage we are really going to see serious shifts in the what the climate does to us because of what we've done to the climate uh then we're going to say holy hell, we have to change over rapidly and we've got nowhere near fast enough in making that transition
0: but it sounds like what you're saying uh, is that uh, there's, we need to go through this transition period. So it is cheaper. It, it is becoming cheaper to use alternative uh, energy sources. So Lazard is a, an asset management company, a pretty big one. They've analyzed what they've called the levelized cost of energy, how much it costs to produce per megawatt hour. And wind now, they reckon, is $45 compared to $135 back in 2009. Uh, Utility scale solar, in other words, big solar farms, $50 compared to $360 back in 2009. So we've seen a big uh, decrease. Uh, Compare that to coal. uh, That $50 for solar compares to $102 for coal, which hasn't really moved much. Nuclear. Actually increasing, $148. It was $111 back in 2009. So mm-hmm. we can see it's 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 getting cheaper. But your point is, but to make all this stuff, you need to use energy, which has probably come from fossil fuels. And you're going to need oh. to use a heck of a lot of it to try and make this transition. Yeah. And we're not going to be able to use a heck of a lot of it if we start to push up the price of uh, those fossil fuels. Uh, it'll make all of these things uneconomic because we are pushing the price up of energy.
1: Well, we're making the transition, we'll have to devote so much of our available energy carbon-based to creating forms of energy mining that are non, non-carbon-based that the amount left over for us to consume is going to have to fall mm. quite drastically. And I believe if you did it by putting the price up to make it fall, you'd have gilet jaunes everywhere on the bloody planet because it'll be the working class who can't afford to get to work. Yeah. And therefore plus the cost
0: of wind uh, would go up because the cost of building the wind farms has gone up because you're using uh, fossil fuel energy to create it in the first place
1: yeah and you've got to pay money for the pit of it so if you, you put up the price of doing that then you, you have other feedbacks which undermine mm. what you're trying to achieve yeah. so the real real dilemma is we, we we have this and this is just in terms of the energy we're consuming right now not looking at whether we're consuming too much energy in terms of what we're dumping into the planet in terms of waste. Mainly in the form of carbon dioxide, as well, but also in terms of how much of the wild environment we're devoting to our own purposes rather than to the needs of the planet to have those wild purposes to regenerate things like, for example, insects, which we spoke about a short while ago. So the, the struggle is that when we first developed wind and solar, the energy return and energy invested was extremely low. Now this is this is a very uh, unfortunately rubbery figure because. What's called the energy return on energy invested (EROI) uh, looks at what's the total amount of uh, energy you put in to getting energy out of a particular source, and it, the, the 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 amount you measure depends on whether you say, are we going to return the environment to the state it was in before we dug that coal mine? Mm. Uh, are we going to are we going to decommission that floating uh, oil rig in in the Gulf of Mexico? Mm. And when people do the calculations for solar, they say, "Are we going to remove those panels and recycle them after they cease working?" Now, from my cynical looking at how we do all this stuff, we don't generally regenerate. We, we there are some regeneration projects for for mining sites, definitely, but frequently we'll leave you know, the hole in the ground and fill it up with other waste later. Uh, so to some extent, I think maybe the Aeroid calculations for solar and wind implying we're going to have to decommission and we include that in the, the cost. I think that's exaggerating the cost. But nonetheless, when you look at these things, they started a very low energy return and energy vested of the order of 5 to 1, whereas oil started about 150 to 1. Mm. Now, as we use more oil, we've been heading further and further down because we've been pushed into things like getting oil out of the North Sea. And I just saw recently that, thank God, they, they bless their cotton socks, uh, every surfer in Australia, except Tony Tony Abbott, seems to be opposed to mining oil in the Great in the in the Great Australian Bite. Mm. That was against that. But you, what well, you've got enormous cost to mine in those regions. So the energy return on energy invested in oil is falling, while at the same time the energy return on energy invested on solar and wind is rising but we are really like a you know a final episode of star trek we've got to resolve this in the final 30 seconds yeah and in the middle we've got higher costs to, to actually build this stuff and a relatively low energy yields coming out of it and below a certain energy yield of the order of about the seven to one return you really can't maintain an advanced society which is where i come back to my rationing issue once more
0: yeah or do we get the saudis to help out with all of this so if we look at so in the united states for example we Got people, yeah, we've got shale oil, which is uh, becoming economic because oil prices have risen. Uh, but shale oil, as we know, it needs lots of water, uh, and if it's not controlled, it can pollute groundwater. Uh, the plants emit uh, nitrogen oxide and sulfur dioxide into the air. It's it's far worse for the environment uh, than uh, than you know conventional oil extraction, uh, and that's before we start you know burning the oil to drive our cars or do what we we want with it. But if if the Saudis, so if I mean, if it was uneconomic or just illegal. To do that, I mean, it, the one one thing you can say about Britain is, even though we've got shale oil, it's not going to get very far because the moment there's a, a slight earth tremor, they have to close them down. And we had the oil sar saying a couple of weeks ago uh, that you know it's just not going to work in this country because there's going to be too much opposition for a Different story in the United States. But if if we got rid of that, if we just said, well, this is a crazy way to uh, t- to deal with uh, fossil fuels, and we look back at Saudi Arabia and say, whereas you guys. I've got a really good way of uh, of extracting fossil fuels. So let's do that because that uses the least energy to do it. Uh, and let's use the money that you're getting from that to look into those alternative te- technologies. And guess what? The Saudis are already doing that. I mean, they've got uh, billions already in Tesla, for example. And, uh, and you know, they are investing in alternative technologies. So it's a win-win almost if if they carry on doing that. It's sort of what you're talking about. We need to use the energy to try and invest in, in, in other energy.
1: Yeah. I mean, at the same time, the, 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 that raises the entire political conflict level of our crazy society these days because you have to get the Saudis on side uh, to say, let's use your oil rather than somebody else's. And they're going to say, we're depleting our oil. What happens to our revenue in future? <clears throat> and there's going to be all sort of conflict over that as well. So uh, we, it is a very, very difficult point that human society is coming into over this. And it certainly can't all be solved by putting up a price on carbon.
0: No. Uh, direct investment, probably more the case. And, and as you say, rationing so that we're using the energy we have got to try and manage that transition.
1: Yeah. And uh, of course, to get rationing, you have to get political agreement on a scale, which normally only occurs when you have an existential threat and people realize it is one. And that's one of the great advantages of the Nazis. Everybody realized there as an existential threat. So the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the level of acceptance of things like rationing was enormous. Mm. Uh, we, 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 to get to the stage where global warming has the same impact Even the global warming deniers are going to have to say Holy hell, that was one hell of a cyclone I lost my house, I lost my car, I lost my dog I lost mm. my guns uh, Maybe
0: I'm wrong The uh, problem you know, of problem but- with rationing is though That uh, everyone gets rationed by the same amount There's, there's really no That's- point in me being rich
1: well, that's exactly the point. We need to get to that situation because we'll let the rich get far too rich with the accumulation of wealth, the rising levels of debt as well, which have said benefit the rich rather than the poor. Uh, all this sort of stuff has made an, an enormous inequality in our society. Again, again, the, the point that uh, that you got out of uh, um, Piketty's work that we are we have probably the highest level of inequality possibly in the history of human civilization. At the same time as uh, we're running out of we we we've we've pushed the the exploitation of the of the physical world beyond what it itself can cope with without causing climatic feedback and indeed species extinction as well. So in that particular mess, yes, the working the rich are going to have to realize, gee, we got all that money and we can't spend it on toys. Tough shit.
0: <laughs> Do you know what? It sounds radical. But it also sounds plausible, doesn't it? The idea that in 10 years you're told you can only use so much energy per person, that that doesn't sound beyond the realm of possibility, does it?
1: No, which is, of course, it would have sort of been beyond the realm of possibility 40 or 50 years ago. But because we've delayed for so long and the oil companies themselves have played a major role in delaying by funding things like the you know, obfuscation about whether climate change is actually happening and so on, in the same way that big tobacco Obfuscated about the dangers of tobacco with cancer, but far, in, in terms of the long term, in fact, far more dangerous even than that was. Uh, we're doing it far too late. So mm. in that situation, you look and say, well, who actually made us wait this long? Was it the rich or was it the poor? Gee, it was the rich. You guys can complain all you like. Uh, as Nick Honeo says uh, famously, uh, the pitchforks are coming. Uh, so there's at a certain point people don't put up with that argument anymore, and I think the fact we're seeing protests about extinction in the UK, we're seeing the gilets jaunes in in, in France, um, this this is not just an economic issue anymore. This is politics.
0: It's like and- that movie Network. I'm going to yell out the window. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not <laughs> going to take this anymore. That's you where it we're- every day. <laughs> Too. That's how I get up in the morning. All right. Very good. Great to talk. We'll catch you again soon. And we are. We're, we're going to talk about uh, the collaborative economy next time, the sharing okay. economy. All right, All right. See you then. Okay. Bye. And that's it. That's uh, the Debunking Economics podcast for today. That was Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. We will both be back again very soon. Thanks for listening.
1: Have a catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well?